Everyone, thank you again for joining us on the Vitalist Spark podcast. Today, we're going to be talking to Tara Jackson, president of Arizona Town Hall. She's no stranger to the Vitalist Spark podcast or to Vitalist. We collaborated very closely on the 113th Town Hall around creating vibrant communities. And Vitalist staff has been engaged in community town halls and statewide town halls, including the last one, mental health, substance use, and homelessness, as well as others in the past. This current topic is is one that's really important to Vitalist and realistically should be important to all of us across Arizona. The topic is equity for all Arizonans, topic that should really matter to all of us so that we can know how to maximize the potential of our communities. I think that's in theory something that we all believe, but as Tara will tell us, it's something that once we understand, it helps us understand what it actually means for communities to be equitable. But that's not an easy conversation to have across Arizona. Equity has become a politically charged word, depending on where you lie on the political spectrum. And the true benefits of using equity are not always understood. Here to tell us about what that's meaning in her work right now, Tara Jackson with Arizona Town Hall. So she's going to tell us about the town hall team, the army of volunteers that she's got spreading across the state, doing community town halls anywhere from Monday to Saturday evenings. So we're going to learn more about town hall and what everyone is learning about equity across Arizona. First things first, Tara, we always ask our guests to tell us a little bit about ourselves and how you arrived at town hall. Without further ado, floor is yours. How I arrived at town hall. Well, Boy, that would be a long story, but I'll try to keep it short. The first is I'm an attorney by trade and practiced law actually for 16 years in a private law firm before I came to the Arizona Town Hall. But before I started practicing law, really the main reason I went to law school is I wanted to make a difference in the world. And I wanted to make a difference through law and policy. I thought that was one of the best ways to do it. And then I was introduced to the Arizona Town Hall. And as someone who was a trial lawyer, and by the way, I loved being a trial lawyer. It was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. But there was something I learned pretty early on, which is that no one really wins at the end. There might be an official winner, but by the end of a trial, or take that metaphor a little larger, a war, there's been a lot of damage getting to the resolution. People may not like each other anymore. There's been a lot of money spent, or some might say wasted. And it is not the best way to make a positive difference in our world. It is not the best way to solve problems. And then as a young attorney, I was introduced to the town hall process as a recorder at a statewide town hall. And and my mind was just blown that there was this process that existed that was homegrown in Arizona that really was a remarkable way to not only solve a problem, but to solve it in a way where people actually like each other more by the end of it, and to solve it in a way where it wasn't a zero-sum game, you win, you lose, or something in between. But when it's working really well, there are these creative new ideas that no one would have ever thought of before with a different process. So that's how I came to the town hall uh, and had the opportunity to come on as president in 2006. One of the reasons I stay, in addition to 
being inspired every day by watching positive impact happen from constructive community conversation is that one of my personal values is I love to learn. I'm always learning. And the town hall is an endless supply of learning about issues, not only from the academic side and the experts, but learning about issues from real conversations at the grassroots level. And that is fascinating to me. I like how you emphasized constructive dialogue. I think sometimes we all get too enamored with our own voices and we just want to hear ourselves talk. That's one of the really great parts of of Town Hall is that you have to be respectful, you have to be constructive, and at the end of it, it's really about bringing consensus. So for those in the audience who may not know or understand the Town Hall process, what is it, how does it allow everyone's input to be heard, and how has it changed over the years, right? It used to be one way where it was a a multi-day event, and it still happens that way, but within the last decade or so, if I recall correctly, community town halls were incorporated. So talk to us about how the town hall process allows everyone's voice to be heard. Well, I might start with what hasn't changed in the 61 years we've been around, and that is the important parts of our mission statement, which include some of the ones you've mentioned. One is really respecting diversity and diverse opinions. That does not mean you have to agree with them. But One of our rules of thumb when we're in a conversation that's part of the town hall is you can attack, if you will, or disagree with an opinion. You cannot attack a person or take it personally. It is it really comes from this idea that we get better solutions as a community, as a business, as an organization. When we create a space where diverse perspectives and ideas can converse in a productive and constructive way. That is the best way to get the best answer. In fact, we do trainings on this all the time for leadership groups and others and showing and establishing what academia also shows is that is how a business, an organization, or a community will perform better if you create a space for diverse voices. So how do we do that? One is in a typical town hall setting, your titles are dropped, first name basis only, so that a youth, someone in high school or college, their perspective is equally important to the mayor of their city. And and by the way, youth, we find, tend to think more creatively, more long-term. That's a superpower they have, and we want to use and embrace that, right, if we're trying to solve problems. Whereas an elected official may have a superpower of knowledge in other areas. So whether it was at the very first Arizona town hall that was three and a half days back in 1961, I believe, or 62, or now, we have this process where everyone's voice is respected and honored and labels are dropped. Education is a key component of our mission statement. Education is not just from the uh, experts or the academic reports that are created in partnership with the universities, the community colleges. There's an important aspect about education from each other. And that only happens when you have respect and you're open to learning about that person beyond labels, beyond silos, whether they're professional silos or, or demographic. 
So education and engagement are two of the important parts of our mission statement that have never changed. Connecting. I see us as an organization that is always connecting different aspects of Arizona together, rural, urban, tribal, different political parties, different levels of knowledge. And the final important part of our mission statement that's never changed is empowering. The belief that everyone who comes to an event has an ability to create change and that in fact, the best way for society to create change is for everyone to be a part of it, whether you are that high school student or you are an elected county official or the governor, that we all are stronger when we move together and we all take some responsibility to be a part of that change. Speaking of change, how have we changed? It used to be that there were two town halls a year. They were three and a half day events. And the goal would be to get a diversity of Arizonans there to have this discussion. Diversity important to get those creative solutions. But think about that, three and a half days going to the Grand Canyon, my favorite location, by the way, or somewhere else, who can make that happen? It's very challenging to get your everyday person working a full-time job, raising a family to be able to go to those events. So out of a, a belief and an understanding that grassroots opinions matter and have value and that we need to go to people where they are as much as possible, we started community town halls. And originally, the idea was those would inform the statewide town hall. Well, the community town halls we have discovered have this amazing, incredible energy of their own. And in the last couple of years, have really taken over the energy and the dynamic discussion that we have on any topic. So as an example, 10 years ago, we'd take on a topic and we might have 150 people come up for three and a half days and talk about it, prepare a report, send it out, and things happen from there. Now, last year, we had about 2,000 people 25 plus different programs around the state, everywhere from Sierra Vista to Bullhead City to Sholo, all in their communities talking about the topic and taking action steps to work with each other moving forward to strengthen their community. So that's how it's the same and that's how it's changed. Let's pretend that somebody listening is, has never been to a town hall program and they're invited to a town hall program. What can they expect? Like you walk into a room and there's seven different tables set up and they tell you to go to, they're usually named after cactus or state flowers. I walk in and I'm told to go to Group Saguaro. And what can I expect at a town hall event? I'll start with what you cannot expect because people think town hall and sometimes they think of what they might see on TV where there's a lot of uh, yelling and screaming. That is not our kind of town hall at all. We're about creating solutions. So you, you come in and most of the program is about having a discussion with people at your table. So the, these events are very interactive. It's not coming to see talking heads talk about the topic. There might be about 15 minutes of a little bit of an overview. We think it's very important to level set and give as objective facts on a topic as possible. 
We always have a background report that people can read. We know not everyone will go and read a, a full background report. So we also always have like a quick one pager, kind of your cliff notes, here's your key points so that we can have an informed conversation. And then most of the time is you're engaging in conversation in a productive way, in a constructive way on the topic and coming up with how to solve that problem. What we're most known for, but it's hard to explain unless you've been to one, is we have this person called a recorder who at a community town hall, we have a lead recorder at the front of the room. And when the tables report out some of their key findings, that lead recorder is trained. It's a special training, trained to look for where there is agreement and key points that represent the voice of the people in the room. And I really want to stress that. It is not the recorder's viewpoint. It is not the recorder's words. It is truly about representing who is in the room and giving them voice and bringing that voice to places even beyond the event being held. Thank you for that. I thought it was important for people to not just hear this, but I remember when I first walked into my first town hall, in-person town hall about a year ago, and I had no idea what to expect. You told me what I should expect, but... It was still a little unnerving a little bit. So hopefully what we get out of this is that people hear this podcast and say, you know what? I want to come to one. I want to share my viewpoints and I want to hear from others. You mentioned a background report that people can read prior to coming to either community town halls or the larger statewide town hall. Can you give us a little insight into what the Equity for All Arizona's background report did to have the readers think about equity? through their own lens, as well as others' viewpoints. There are some questions in there that sort of prompt you to think about equity, not only from your viewpoints, but how it might impact others. So this, this was a very unique topic to take on for a whole lot of reasons. And we partnered, as, as we often do, with the Morrison Institute to be the lead editor for the report. While we usually have a lead editor who's a part of an academic institution, whether it's ASU, U of A, or NAU, there is always an emphasis on having chapters and diversity of authors within every background report. And I should throw that in, that that's part of everything we do, whether uh, having diverse input and diverse participation in every aspect of a topic that we take on. So the Morrison Institute edited this background report on equity. And again, a little different from our typical report. Our typical report is full of facts and figures and some of them like the one on mental health, substance use and homelessness. I am still told every day by people in the field that it is the best resource out there. It is just chock full of information, not necessarily an easy beach read, but one that you go to for some quick information. The equity report, because of the topic and how unique it was, it took on a different tactic. While there's certainly some overview of what do we mean by equity, because there's been so much discussion around the use of that topic that is not helpful and it's not helpful for building communities or strengthening communities. But also it was written in a way to be interactive and a much easier read than just your standard background report with lots of facts and figures. So there's lots of opportunity within the background report to do some self-reflection, to 
identify lenses and experiences from your own life in order to give a deeper, richer understanding of what this topic's really about. There were also some really interesting case studies within that background report. Were there any that stood out to you that helped create a more equitable Arizona? So many that are interesting. One, probably just because of my law background, but I won't spend too much time on it, is the case study with the Arizona Equal Justice Alliance. And we all want justice, right? We want fairness in our justice system. And that case study is really about trying to ensure that happens. As a lawyer and individual, I've been involved for quite a number of years now with a, an effort by the Arizona Supreme Court called Access to Justice. I just want to, I'm going to touch a little bit on that. And then I want to move to healthcare and internet because those are two issues where equity is a real issue for uh, rural and tribal Arizona. And access to healthcare and broadband internet are not things that come front of mind for people when they talk about equity. And that's something that I think is really important to talk about with our, our communities outside of our metropolitan areas. But let me go back to access to justice. The way that most people in Arizona access our court system is either through landlord-tenant or divorce, family law issues, family law and landlord-tenant. So that's how most people access the system. And most of those folks are not represented by attorneys. And it is very intimidating and challenging. If coming to a public event or having to speak is challenging, imagine having to show up, you take the day off work, and you don't realize there's certain documents you're supposed to bring, you walk into a court, it is very intimidating and difficult. And if you don't have the money to hire an attorney, which most people don't, so the question is, is that equitable access to justice? How do you make access to justice for most people who need to just resolve something through family law court or divorce? Is it fair to say, hey, if you can't afford an attorney, that's too bad? Well, the, the Arizona Supreme Court and a lot of people working with the Bar Association said, no, this, this is not okay. We need to find new ways to make justice more accessible to those who use it and those who use it most often. So there have been a lot of efforts with communication tools, videos, even changing some rules and policies so that you don't maybe have to miss a whole day on how to truly make that more equitable. So that's what equity is about. Equity is about how do we optimize our communities and really the strengths of everyone in those communities, knowing that, that means we have to give some people a little extra help. If you don't have the money to hire an attorney, it is incredibly helpful and beneficial to have a video online that shows you, here's what it's going to look like. Here are some other ways you can serve papers without an expensive process server. Here are other ways that you can get this done, but that takes a little extra work to put together, right? What does that mean for our community? It means there are people who don't have to take days off work the way they did before. It means there are people who don't get held in contempt of court because they didn't understand. That's one area. But let me move on to areas that I think are really important to rural and tribal areas. Anyone who's been in healthcare access or lived a healthcare field or lived in a rural community knows that access to healthcare 
is extremely challenging. And that is especially true if you're dealing with substance use or mental health issues. I learned this last year doing these community town halls, just how difficult and challenging it is. So I think there is, there's a pretty easy, all the chapters are easy to read in this particular background report, but I think it's, it's worth a read and looking at the importance of making access to healthcare more equitable in the case study with the Arizona Health Improvement Plan, because that has a, such a big impact on our rural areas. And also what I hear in the rural areas uh, a lot is problems with the internet and broadband internet. Well, these days, if you don't have broadband internet, that might mean you can't apply for a job. It might mean you can't take a job, or it might mean going back to that justice situation that you can't get online and appear virtually, and instead you have to drive three hours to Phoenix or somewhere else. So broadband internet has now become this really critical part of how we strengthen our communities and build them economically and otherwise. So, but it costs a whole lot more bring stable broadband internet to rural communities. Equity is that you invest a little more per capita and per community to bring it to those communities because it has such an important value. It actually just reminds me of the town hall that we just had like three weeks ago at, in Pine Top Lakeside, right? Just things that living in the phoenix area or whether people are in tucson or in any sort of a metro area you just don't think about these what we might consider minute barriers something that's just an annoyance for people who are in remote rural areas create what there was a term that somebody mentioned which was decision fatigue if i recall correctly where now this one thing that you need to get to if it's an appointment now takes 20 steps of thought to how am I going to overcome this because my car broke down and now I can't get to this other place and now I can't do this and childcare. All of these things that we just take for granted living in metro areas, rural Arizona is dealing with on a daily basis. And those are things that moving on to how do you frame that conversation? Because like we've said, the word equity on its own can have a politically charged connotation. How do you move people forward? How have you been able to frame or learn to frame the conversation around equity in different areas of the state so that people are willing to have informed and productive conversations? Well, it gets back to the, the value of the community town halls, which is you go to people where they are and listen to them and really listen to their concerns and what is what are the barriers you mentioned that program we had up in pine top and the decision fatigue or even just all straight out fatigue of trying to deal with an issue that here in maricopa county would be pretty easy so maybe i'll use that particular program as an example that was up in pine top lakeside and the one of the issues for them is transportation equity. The fact that when it's snowing, 
and people tend to live further apart. What if your car breaks down? There's not the same kind of public transportation. It, they're not as populated. They don't get as much of the transportation dollars based on certain things. And yet they need it more. And this is impacting their community so immensely, whether it's, and it's not just getting to work or getting to childcare. It's things like healthcare access, since we talked about that. I'll give an example. They have certain specialist doctors who might fly in once a month for surgeries. Now, the snow or the weather shuts down the one flight and the airport, that doctor can't come in. It's not, and, and now it becomes a healthcare crisis for those who had scheduled their surgeries. So in that case, that community, what really mattered to them that they wanted to talk about is transportation equity. And then when you realize, in this case, transportation equity, that community would be the first to say, we need more dollars per capita and per person than people in Maricopa County. We need more of those because our roads have snow and they deteriorate more quickly and all these other reasons. And by the way, it's important to all of you in Maricopa County that we have good roads. You like to come up here and go skiing and, and you like to come up here and right, and enjoy the recreation when it's hot in the summer. You're driving on our roads. And you want those roads to be good. So here's the thing. We need a little more money to make that happen per person than you need in Maricopa County. That's equity, folks. That's equity. Equity is not equal. Equity is you look at where there should be extra resources for everyone to thrive. And if you look at equity in that way, people get it. I'll use Mojave County as another example. When we first mentioned, and Mojave County is not only a, generally speaking, conservative political arena, but there have been a number of elected officials who have framed equity in a way that is simply not accurate, that equity is about communism or redistribution of wealth. That is not what equity is about at all. And equity for folks who live in a place like Mojave County is about equitable access to healthcare resources, equitable access to broadband internet, which means as a state, investing more per person or per capita in that area. An equal distribution, right, would be, well, if you have five people, you get $10 a person. Well, they need $30 a person. That's equity. What's the impact? The impact of an equitable lens, whether it is in healthcare, internet, transportation, or trees, that's another one we can talk about, another unique way, is that you allow people, individuals, and a community to reach their potential in a better way that affects us all. I actually just thought of an individual one for myself that might be education equity, but just a little bit of my journey. So so I came from a, a lower socioeconomic family. And as a result, I qualified for all the Pell Grants, all the federal assistance. If I didn't have that, that was equity. If I didn't have that assistance, I would not have been able to go to college or law school. I would not have reached my maximum potential. And by now, I promise you, I have paid more in taxes probably 200 times over 
than what was invested in my education. But that was an equitable investment in my education, allowing me to maximize my potential and to give back to the community in ways, hopefully, if nothing else in taxes, but hopefully in many other ways, to give back to the community in ways that far exceed that equitable investment. So that's another way to look at it. That's great. I lo- I always love thinking about things as investments in people rather than government expenses, right? Mm-hmm. Investing in our potential. And ideally, we will all give it back once and repay that investment. And actually, I love that phrase you just used, uh, Sergio. Equity is in investing in our potential, not just individually, but as communities in the state. That's what we're doing. When we invest more money in broadband internet up in the rural areas of Arizona, as well as the tribal areas, we're investing in the potential that could be huge. That's what we're doing. And that's where that shift in the conversation, I think, just allowing people to see it differently. And I think that's that's what's really great about what Town Hall is doing. Let's walk through. There's a, a fact sheet that you guys have, right? There's the background report, which is like 50 pages, which, like you said, is much shorter than normal background reports. But there's also a quick fact sheet in case you just want some quick and dirty facts about equity. So there's some points in there. And let's hit a couple of those. The first point that jumps out at us, and you mentioned it already, is access to health care, right? In urban communities, there's 80 medical care providers per 100,000 residents. uh, And that number drastically drops to 10.1 medical providers per 100,000 people. So... What have you heard on the road about this? Oh, wow. I heard a lot on the road about this last year, and I know I'm about to hear more because we're at the beginning of our community town halls on the topic of equity. But last year, as you mentioned earlier, our topic was mental health, substance use, and homelessness. And when I think of the programs we had in Sholo and Kingman and Bullhead City, and even some of the other areas uh, down southern Arizona, but really those places outside of either Maricopa or Pima County is just in in some places, just true tragedies of not being able to access healthcare and uh, for people with substance use issues, that decision fatigue that you mentioned earlier, or I would say just all out fatigue, if anyone's ever had an experience with someone with a substance use disorder, once they get to that space and that place where they're ready to accept help, you want to jump on it. It's really important. That's a part of the success. Now imagine you get someone to that place and you're in rural Arizona. You can't find any place to book them in. There is no bed. There is no facility. Or in some cases, because there's no facility at all, the only place they can go is down to Maricopa County. Now, what do you do? Hopefully, if you're lucky, you drive them down or you get them on a bus and get them down there to a program. If it's 90 days, what does it mean? They're now separated from their family and support system. The likelihood of success is much less. And I'm just talking substance use because that was one of the issues that we talked about at length last year, substance use and mental health which then is this cyclic effect that leads to homelessness. 
And in fact, um, if your listeners didn't know this, Arizona had one of the fastest rates of homelessness in the country. It's not that homelessness in the country went up so much over the last couple of years. We're seeing it because it went up so much here in Arizona. Now, part of that is relating to the increase in the price of rent and housing, but it's all related. It is this cycle effect. And one of the big issues that came out repeatedly is how we solved this problem last year with mental health, substance use, and homelessness is prevention and getting to people as quick as possible. So if someone knows they have an issue or they need to see a mental health provider and you're in rural Arizona, almost impossible in some cases. So it's no surprise to me that when I was out in rural Arizona, not only did they confirm all the statistics for the challenges of mental health and substance use, what I heard in rural Arizona is it's much worse than that. It's much worse than that because people don't have a provider to go to get diagnosed. And we, we have no place to send people to. Now, what about telemedicine? Let's get back to internet availability. Yeah, I think that was the one thing I was going to go to next was, as we all saw about three and a half years ago, the world suddenly stopped and everything became virtual, whether that was a doctor's appointment or school for our kids. For a lot of us, it was work, right? And I think for those of us who were in metropolitan areas and had access to stable internet, that part of it didn't seem that that difficult, right? We were all locked up and in our homes, but we still had access to the internet. And that's not the case when you're up in, in rural Arizona. You're, you're no, sort of... some, yeah, <laughs> some of the stories I heard there, uh, just to raise awareness of how challenging it is, you know, up in sort of Navajo County, there would be one area near the school where you could get internet. So you would have parents driving their kids sometimes 40 miles sitting out in their car to try to access the internet just to have them go to school. And so just the challenges and difficulties, and you might say, well, they choose to live there. They do. Well, some of them, the kids don't, obviously, but we want those communities to be strong and vibrant. They're part of our state. We want them to reach their potential so that not only those of us in Maricopa County can visit them, but also because they're such an essential and important part of, of what Arizona is. And so that investment in, in broadband secure internet is just important, not just for education, but now, uh, as I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of jobs you can't even apply for unless you do it over the internet. Lifeline, it's part of life now, hard to function without access to the internet. What else have you heard? You and your army of volunteers are just starting to get on the road with this new topic, but what other things have you heard about equity and how to frame this across the state? Well, I think framing it across the state, it depends on the community, as, as I mentioned earlier. So I'll give a few more examples. I think access to healthcare and access to the internet is really what matters so much to rural Arizona. Obviously, Pine Top wanted to talk about access to transportation, very critical to them. Some other uh, twists or interesting ideas. 
We are doing one program in conjunction with the Arizona Sustainability Alliance on tree equity. And at first I thought, well, what is tree equity? It is so great to learn from all of our partners. And what I learned is in the urban environments, uh, often the poor areas, there aren't a lot of trees. There aren't a lot of trees because it takes money not only to plant them, but money to continue to water and take care of them. What does that mean? As our temperatures keep rising, it means that the temperature in that area is much higher. You get this heat island effect. Many folks living in those communities have to take public transportation. And so lack of trees or tree equity has a huge impact on health. Vitalist has done a great job of showing this, how your zip code makes a difference in, in your health outcomes. Well, this is one way it does, is if you're in the hot Arizona sun in the summer and you're catching a bus to work and you have to stand out there without shade and walk, the impact on your health is much greater. So that's another way. How do we ensure that there is appropriate shade, especially as our temperatures are getting hotter or look at the month we just had, holy cow, that is really important to protect the health and well-being of our communities. And I want to segue from that to an area that we haven't talked as much about, but is equally important. And that is historical discrimination and racial inequity and, and even gender inequity. Here are some things I learned from talking to some community partners where we will be holding some community town halls in South Central Phoenix. We have some other programs as well in some other areas of the state that will address this. About the impact of that. In, there, there was redlining in Phoenix. And for those who may not know what that is, that meant that if you were of a certain race or ethnicity, you were not allowed to live beyond a certain area. Um, and that some of that exists more recently than you might realize. How does that impact things? If you weren't allowed, if you were forced to live in a certain area and then those areas, you weren't given loans to buy homes, it's this whole access to financial equity, equitable access to finances and investment. I learned also that there were even, if you were a real estate agent, you could not sell property north of a certain area if you were of color. This blew me away. I did not realize this. And as an attorney, I even uh, worked in the area of discrimination law. This still has an impact today because you have, I think of, okay, all the assets I've been able to build up for my children and leave for them so that they'll have some, some equity, financial equity to buy a house maybe in this really expensive housing market. Well, if you didn't have, if you historically as a family, because of your race or gender, didn't have an opportunity to get out loans, buy a house so that you built up generational financial support, or to even have access to um, opportunities to further your professional career. I really had no idea that you couldn't even sell a home north of a certain area. That, like I said, that really surprised me. Now you've got these this impact of historical discrimination, and we touch on that as well um, on our in our one page fact sheet. Just being aware that is an impact. 
being aware, even in our tribal nations, if you study tribal history and how the, the lands and the way that their cultures lived were taken away from them in many cases. And I'm not using taken away. I'm not just throwing that out. As a lawyer, I was also shocked to learn about the contracts that were breached and the impact of that on many of our tribal nations that still has impact today. I think it's really important for people to understand that, to understand, to at least have an understanding and appreciation for why certain communities are the way they are today and the challenges uh, that they've had to go through and are still going through to try to reach their maximum potential. It's interesting that we're on these topics and you got me thinking about, uh, as you were mentioning, the redlining portion of it. There's an episode of the Valley 101 podcast produced by the Republic. And I think that street that you're talking about is Van Buren, right? If you were a person of color, you could not live north of Van Buren. And there was a man who was highlighted in a podcast and he had somebody else buy his home for him. He bought it. He gave the person the money. They bought the house north of Van Buren. And then the next day he bought it back. All right. And then, well, there's diversity in the neighborhood, which wasn't allowed, but lo and behold, that's, and I think that was like in the sixties and seventies. Like it really, yeah, it ago. really wasn't that long ago. I used to have someone um, who worked for me at the town hall and her grandfather, who was a, a renowned pilot in the Air Force, but he was black. And her grandmother, who was black, but who could pass as white on the day. And they were very established and, and educated, just amazing people she went to Paradise Valley because she could pass as white to buy a house. That's how they had to buy a house. And then, of course, it created challenges, but they stayed there. And that is that still impacts people today. It impacts still where people live. And there's a reason. Yeah, it wasn't that long ago. Just reminds you, right? Every time we think, hey, we're past that issue, just think it wasn't that long ago that these things were we're still issues. In some communities in Arizona, I have had people tell me that based on discussions around equity, that they are afraid to have conversations on this topic because they have been threatened. And that there in some communities in Arizona, there have been open threats made to people of color, where people of color and youth are leaving these communities because they don't feel welcome there. And that's very interesting, I think, because those community members, it will be very interesting in, say, 10 or 15 years, our youth are diverse, and they want diversity, whether you like it or not. And if you aren't attracting youth, and if you aren't attracting diverse people as your workforce, your workforce is going to dry up. So relating to historical discrimination and looking at equity, just looking at a self-interest perspective, I'm going to put aside thoughts about what's right or any of that from a personal perspective, what's in it for me? If you are a community and you're looking around and you're having trouble recruiting and retaining 
workforce, especially highly skilled workforce, then this is an issue you better look at. That's where your future workforce is. It is there. And that's what you need to do to build your community is you need to ensure, especially in those healthcare fields, these aging populations, um, get back to rural Arizona and healthcare, attracting healthcare professionals to your region. If you don't have an equity lens to look at attracting and retaining people of color and people of diverse backgrounds, you simply will not fill those slots. Yeah, you're going to run out of workers if you're not attracting anybody else to fill those jobs. So Michael Crow speaks about education being a an economic imperative. It almost seems like equity is also an economic imperative. I could not agree with you more. You, Yeah, you hit it on the nose uh, there for me for a couple of reasons. It has been shown over and over again that an equitable lens actually uh, leads to a better bottom line. The companies who do that have a better bottom line. So if you're just looking from a, a P&L perspective, and the reason for that is the same reason that the town hall process comes up with the best answers. You want creative ideas, and the only way you do that is to have diverse perspectives around the table. Now, I want to talk about something different that could be a whole podcast in itself, so I will barely touch on it because we're getting close to the end of our time, I think, anyway. And that is a term I just learned maybe about a year and a half or two years ago called the Senstemic. It is a global impact on all of us. Here's what it is. Population. Baby boomers are the largest, richest population in the world. They are getting older and retiring. And because they were the richest population and because they could choose not to have four or five children, they didn't have that many children. They didn't replace themselves. And so we have this cliff of workforce, a cliff where all the workforce is dropping off and there are not enough people to replace them. Where are you going to find those people? You're going to find them in using an equitable lens, whether it is for people with disabilities, for people from especially Mexico. We are so lucky to be right next to Mexico. We need to embrace that diverse workforce because that's where they are. You are also going to find them in people who just diversity and using equity to bring in that workforce. If you want us to thrive as a community or as a business, then you need to start looking at this now. I'm going to guess that many people in communities were already saying, well, where are all the workers going? Why can't I find them? There aren't enough people. The people weren't replaced. And those people who are out there may not look the same as they looked 30 years ago. And if you're not open to that now, then your business your and your community are not going to thrive. There you go. All right. So let's say somebody didn't get to come to a community town hall, but there's another way that they can tell you what equity means to them, right? There's a video contest that town hall is working on with, I think it's KJZZ. Tell us about that. So yeah, the first thing I would say is just go to our, our website and even our homepage has a link to the video contest. Our website is aztownhall.org. 
But if you Google Arizona Town Hall, it's usually the first that comes up. So it's a short video contest. There's some cash prizes. It doesn't have to be a fancy video. It can just be on your cell phone. Make it real easy. There's even an opportunity with Spot 127 to teach you how to create a video if you want. But really, I would suggest, especially those that are used to your cell phone, just create a quick video. What does equity mean to you? You might win the prize. Who knows? And we will be showcasing the winners at our our statewide town hall, which is in mid-November, I believe November 13th and 14th. I have to double check my dates here. But again, you can find that on our website, but that's where we'll announce it. That would be awesome. That'd be great. Well, I think that's where, you know, if anything else, make a video and add to the voice, add to the pool of voices and, and make it as diverse as possible so that we all know what equity means to Arizona. How can organizations and people around Arizona get involved? I know you have a calendar chock full of opportunities and events coming up over the next few months. So how can organizations and, and people get involved? First, yeah, first thing I would say is go to our website, see if there, there's so many open public events and the community town halls really are welcoming. You get to just talk casually to people at your table. It's a great way to have that conversation. We also have a unique program um, happening at the end of this month to address polarization. It's interactive. It should be uh, fascinating. It's, it, it's just a Friday evening with dinner and then a Saturday. There are scholarships easily available because it's sponsored by the American Arbitration Association. That's another way to dive in. And I think people are, are craving, I am seeing it, craving, how do I have a conversation with a family member or someone else who has polarized opinions? Or even how do I describe what equity really is? These are opportunities for all of your listeners to be a part of the solution, to help build our community stronger, to bring us back together as communities, as Arizonans, and as Americans. Sarah, thank you for all the information you've given us. Thank you for taking time on your Friday afternoon to share this time with us. Thank you for all the work that you and this army of volunteers are engaging in across the state to hear diverse voices and learn what equity means to Arizona. And for all of you listening, if you have more questions, as Tara said, aztownhall.org is where you can go find them. They're also on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, YouTube. You guys are, are everywhere. So one way or another, you are able to find Arizona Town Hall. Tara, thank you again for joining us today. Have a wonderful afternoon. Thank you. Wonderful to be here. Take care.